Welcome to Making Footprints, Not Blueprints, a regular podcast about matters philosophical and religious. My name is Andrew James Brown, and despite being myself an atheistically inclined free thinker, I'm also the minister to the Unitarian Church in the city of Cambridge, UK. The title of this podcast is borrowed from the philosopher Herbert Fingeret, who, in his book, The Self in Transformation, offered us studies that were outcomes rather than realised objectives, which were offered to the reader as an encouragement to make intellectual footprints, not blueprints. This podcast tries to proceed in a similar fashion and takes seriously an insight of the poet A.R. Ammons, who felt that true human freedom only comes when we have understood that full scope always eludes our grasp, that there is no finality of vision, that we have perceived nothing completely, and that, therefore, and thankfully, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. Welcome to this week's New Walk. When is ruination not quite ruination? From my childhood on, one of the great pleasures in life has been to visit ruins of any kind, but the ones which have brought me the greatest pleasure are religious ones, especially those of chapels, churches, the great abbeys and priories. Along with the poet Peter Levy, they have always caused me to consider what these ruins are, Desolate spirits in the air singing in their stone languages what religion is not and is. As I've sat in their bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, it is obvious that they no longer function in the way their builders and original users once thought they should, and that therefore, in one way, they may be considered religiously dead. But is this true? Thanks to the late 18th and early 19th century romantics, it is possible to see the ruination of these buildings not only as a continuation of their original religious function, but as a nuanced heightening and broadening of it. Like the human soul spoken of by the poet Edmund Waller, though battered and decayed, they are now more able to let in new light through chinks that time has made. In short... In the clear open spaces delineated by these ruins, with their roots in the good dark earth, now open to the bright sky and which still speak of the gods and mortality, the Romantics found themselves suddenly able to understand creation and encounter the divine and the sacred anew in the form of nature. Along with Spinoza, who coined the memorable phrase Deus sive natura, God or nature, The Romantics attempted, and for some of us succeeded, to divinise the natural and naturalise the divine. God was nature, and nature was God. As the historian Frederick C. Beiser notes, following Spinoza's dictum meant that a scientist who professed the most radical naturalism could still be religious, and a pastor who confessed the deepest personal faith in God could still be a naturalist. Anyway, 
Thanks to this, it has become possible for someone like me to feel that these ecclesiastical buildings in their ruined state entered into a new and different kind of religious fullness. These memories and thoughts have been very much in mind during the COVID-19 pandemic because the church where I am the minister has been closed since March 2020. As a student of religious history, I'm acutely aware that a sudden closing of a church during a time of significant political and social turmoil has often been the prelude to a building's abandonment and eventual ruination. I say abandonment, but although this is true at the moment for the vast majority of the regular congregation, because my wife and I live next door to the church, and my study in which I wrote and am recording this piece is attached to the church itself, I have daily been haunting the nearly always empty buildings for some eight months now. Inevitably, as I walk through the equivalent of its own bare but not yet ruined choirs, I find myself considering once again, though now literally very close to home, what this building is, this desolate spirit singing in its stone languages, what religion is not and is. It continues to strike me that the idea of openness lies at the heart of it all. And this is true whether that openness is spoken of in terms of actual skies or to a sense of how the transcendent can break into and illuminate the darkness of our earth and help us meaningfully still to speak of the gods and our mortality. Does a religious building have to fall into decay in order for this openness to be manifested or displayed by it? I don't think so. And to illustrate this, I can turn to the strange case of the altar-like communion table situated in the fine classical apse at the east end of the Cambridge Unitarian Church. If you follow the link to the blog in the notes to this podcast, you'll be able to see a photograph of this arrangement. Since becoming the minister here in 2000, I have continued to use the table in exactly the same way as it has always been used. Then, as now, it has upon it flowers and two candles, and following the collection, the small collection bag is put there as well. It is important also to know that since the church was built in 1927, no cross has ever been placed upon it. Now, I've been involved with churches in one way or another for my entire life. I was born an Anglican, and at one point nearly began the process of training for its priesthood. So... When I first saw this table, its placement and how it was being used, I took it to be, quite unproblematically, an altar. Indeed, even the light switches in the vestibule for turning on the lights above it bore and still bear a little label upon which you can find, quaintly misspelled, the word altar, A-L-T-E-R. But one Sunday, only a week or so into my ministry, in the presence of a very elderly and senior member of the congregation, who joined in the mid-1940s, I had occasion to refer to this table as an altar. He fairly bit my head off, and in no uncertain terms informed me that it was not an altar, but the table for the flowers. His vehement, even angry response led me to wonder why on earth the dissenting liberal Protestant church such as this refounded in only 1904, although its history goes back into the 18th century, and with bespoke buildings dating from 1923, the hall, and 1927, the church, 
Why on earth it had decided to place an altar table in what is for us a very unusual and controversial Catholic pre-Vatican II position and then never to place upon it a cross or to use it as an actual communion table. I was suddenly struck by how odd this was in a Unitarian context. A couple of years later, perhaps 2003-2004, we were visited by an architectural historian, alas, I do not know their name, who was researching the work of the architect of this building, Ronald Potter Jones. Given my earlier experience, I asked the historian why he thought this Unitarian congregation had decided to commission and build a church with what looks so much like a conventional high altar. His answer was as follows. Following the end of the First World War, many liberal churches were literally reeling with shock and disappointment. For not only had they lost many members in the conflict, as had of course all churches, but also their liberal, optimistic late 19th century theology, which, in the language of the time, expressed a belief in, quote, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, the leadership of Jesus, salvation by character, and the progress of mankind onward and upwards forever, unquote, had begun to appear to them and others as no more than a mere whistling in the wind. It was a time when Matthew Arnold's sea of faith could be seen to have withdrawn even further than its lows of the 1860s, and the death of God, first publicly proclaimed by Nietzsche in 1882, had become ever more plausible to more and more people. However, despite this, it is in 1919 that we first read of the Unitarian Congregation's plans to build a hall and church on Emmanuel Road. The historian suggested that the trauma of the war led to a number of congregations, like Cambridge, to decide to build churches which, architecturally speaking, deliberately harked back to safer, more conservative and apparently secure times. At their most ineffective, these buildings enabled a congregation merely to pretend their outdated theology wasn't in real trouble and that their liberal God was not dead and still dwelt on the altars in their holy places. However, at their most effective, they gave a congregation some real time and breathing space, slowly to work through and come to terms with both the withdrawal of the sea of faith and the shocking death of their liberal God. Over the intervening years, this interpretation has encouraged me, now and then, to look a little closer at the history of the congregation, and I have slowly discovered that, from the very start, a powerful tension was always being expressed in and through our altar table. It turns out that between 1908 and 1914, the influential founding figures of this congregation who drove the project to build this hall and church actively tried to employ a controversial Unitarian minister called the Reverend J.M. Lloyd Thomas, who, in 1907, had published a book called A Free Catholic Church. In such a church, Thomas believed, would, quote, ultimately be found an ideal which, if courageously worked out, will transcend or reconcile the oppositions, not merely of Anglicanism and dissent, but of Romanism 
and Protestantism. Unquote. In short, Thomas desired the development of a church tradition which could combine in some fashion Catholic or Anglo-Catholic liturgy and practice with the kind of liberal, rational, non-doctrinal approach to belief and theology favoured by liberal Protestants, including the Unitarians. However, it proved impossible to persuade Thomas to leave his congregation in Nottingham, and so, instead, they eventually obtained the services of the Reverend Edward William Loomis from Leicester, the great meeting there, who shared Thomas's free Catholic position and who stayed off and on until the start of the First World War. What is important to see here is that their protracted attempt to hire someone like Thomas strongly indicates that the founders of this congregation were predisposed to building a church with a high altar dedicated in some fashion to a liberal God who would transcend or reconcile the oppositions, not merely of Anglicanism and dissent, but of Romanism and Protestantism. In an ancient university town such as Cambridge, which then, as now, values both the practices of traditional religion and the active seeking of new light and truth, such a mix, were it possible to concoct, would have been a highly attractive proposition. But, as we know, in 1914 the First World War begins, and the minute books clearly reveal that the congregation struggled greatly during this time, not least of all because its leading figure and inspiration, a certain Lieutenant Colonel Frederick John Marion Stratton, DSO, OBE, TD, DL, FRS, PRAS, and who later became Professor of Astrophysics here at the University of Cambridge between 1928 and 1947, he left to join the fighting in France with the British Expeditionary Force. By July 1919, Stratton is finally back from the war, and this seems to be the immediate trigger for the aforementioned plans to build a church with an altar table at the East End, a project which comes to final completion in 1927. I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to say that following the unimaginable horrors of the First World War experienced by Stratton and his generation, our altar table powerfully encoded for us the trauma and paradox of 20th and now 21st century liberal Christianity. A trauma that played out in, on the one hand, a strong desire to continue to believe in the reality of a transcendent, good, loving and just God and to raise up for him an altar where one could go, like the psalmist, with exceeding joy to give praise with the harp. And on the other, the need to raise up an empty, memorial table, a grave even, upon which to place flowers of remembrance to acknowledge the death and absence of the very same God. It has become apparent to me that since those traumatic post-First World War days, the temptation to collapse this paradox to one of its poles has always been present in this local community. Even in my own short 20-year ministry here, I have seen some members continue vehemently to insist that it should be seen as an altar to a living liberal Christian God, whilst others have continued vehemently to insist that because God is dead, it is simply a table upon which to place flowers, candles and the collection. The basic 
and to me false binary question being asked all the time is, are we still some kind of liberal Christian church or, instead, simply an association of free-thinking humanists and atheists? But as I see it, our altar table should continue to express the paradox. This is because, theologically speaking, when the paradox is consciously maintained, our altar table seems to me to be working just like the ruined buildings with which I began this podcast. It offers us a unique, open, clearing at the heart of our present building. Because at the same time as it's clearly a ruin of an old liberal Christianity, for following the violent horrors of the 20th and 21st centuries, the god of liberal Christianity is assuredly dead. It is precisely this same ruin which now helps us to notice and frame a new kind of openness to that which transcends us, to the possibility of the appearance of a new god suitable to our own, much more sceptical and disbelieving age. In short, when held up as the paradox it is, Our altar table is, for me, a beautiful, ruinous, open clearing in our midst, which encourages us freely to re-ask and re-answer again and again the perennial question of what religion is not and is. Personally, I consider myself to be fortunate that my own species of Christian atheism allows me to approach this unique table without ever feeling the need to collapse its foundational paradox. Because before it, like the philosopher Martin Heidegger, I come each day to prepare readiness through thinking and poetry for the appearance of the God or for the absence of the God. And, like the Protestant theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I stand in the presence of God, who makes us live in the world without the God hypothesis. For this challenging gift, I daily give hearty thanks. And so to conclude, for various good reasons, I do not think that the current pandemic is the first step to the abandonment and ruination of our present buildings. But even as I say this, these reflections on our altar table helps me sense that whenever inevitable ruination does come, be it in the next few years or a few centuries hence, it will not necessarily spell the end of the living religious significance of our building, but instead may well open up access to even richer and more relevant ways for us to understand creation and for us to encounter the divine and sacred. But in the meantime... This opening is with us in the paradoxical clearing that is our altar table. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. So, farewell for now, and remember, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. See you on the path. Thank you again for listening to the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and each new podcast will arrive on your device as soon as it is released. Also, 
If you'd like to continue in the conversation, please come along to our live online discussions which take place every other Wednesday evening at 7.30pm GMT. Anyone is invited to ask questions or make comments on the issues discussed in the podcast. You can find the link to join the Zoom meeting in the episode notes. We look forward to talking with you then.